This is On Being's Unheard Cuts. I'm Krista Tippett. You're listening to my unedited conversation with the late, great historian Yaroslav Pelikan. He devoted his life to exploring the modern vitality of ancient Christian doctrines and creeds. He died in 2006, and this interview was from 2003. We sat down together in the studios of KCMP in Northfield, Minnesota. Download the MP3 of the produced show with Yaroslav Pelikan at onbeing.org. I'd, you know, I would say let's let's have an intelligent conversation okay. and, and not assume that they're dumb or that this is not no. part of their lives. But if, you know, if I would assume that's, that Yale undergraduates are listening. Yeah. Undergraduates, mm-hmm. not, not mm-hmm. my Ph.D. students mm-hmm. and not my uh, colleagues in other parts of the world, but undergraduates who are alert, mm-hmm. interested, often... Woefully uninformed. Yes, right. May have very little grounding in this. That's so, right. Let's say you're Yale undergraduates and their parents and friends. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Who are the victims of an American education. Right. <laughs> <laughs> oh, see, we, we, we're in danger of going all over the map. But yeah. I, I, uh, so let's start. Um, okay. And let's just start with some. some really basic questions. I mean, I have a, an MDiv from Yale and, uh, and I and I remember being very surprised about thinking about creeds differently through that. But it's been a few years, and I think some of the questions that came back to me that I think might be on, you know, listeners' minds are, you know, do, does does every do all traditions have creeds, all Christian traditions, um, and and how how do they tend to be used? I mean, let's say as an Episcopalian, which I am now. They are used. They are part of the liturgy, but is that is that how they are always used by different traditions? I don't think it is. And how are they meant to be used by ordinary people? So that's a big place to start. Well, first of all, it is one of the differences between Christianity and the other major world religions that Christianity has spawned many creeds. As uh, this set shows, thousands of right. of pages of creeds. How many creeds are in are in the or have you collected? Uh well we collected uh very nearly a thousand of them and and cut it down to I forget what the final box score is on that. Uh, uh somewhere around 200. Mm-hmm. Uh, see, whereas to be Jewish is to affirm every day if you're observant and with your dying breath, if you can, hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord is one, the Shema. And that's really all the creed that Israel needs. And pe- it, it, so it's been possible to be Jewish now for these 3,000 or whatever years without publishing four volumes of, of creedal texts. There is no God but Allah and Muhammad is his prophet. Right. Well, Muslim is an, also, is yes. enough of a creed yes. to uh, uh, animate the most rapid expansion of a religion in the history of humanity mm-hmm. from, from the death of the prophet in 632 to 732 
in uh, in Gaul at the Battle of Tours, Islam managed to spread from the Arabian Peninsula south and all the way across the northern coast of Africa to Gibraltar and into Spain and on into France in a hundred years. Okay. Uh, with this one little creed. And Christianity uh, uh, sprouts them at will, right and left. So uh, what is it about Christianity that has needed creeds? Well, of course, what, what it is about religious faith that needs creed is that religious faith in general, prayer addressed to whom it may concern, uh, sentiment about uh, some transcendent dimension otherwise uh, undefined uh, does not have any staying power. Uh, It's okay to have that uh, at 10 o'clock on a Sunday morning uh, when you're out with your friends somewhere. But in the darkest hours of life, you've got to believe something specific. And specific means something specified and therefore specifiable. And that specification is the task of the creed. Uh, Because uh, much as some people may not like it, to believe one thing is also to disbelieve another. Hmm. To say yes is also to say no. Uh, and clarifying what the yes is and what that yes implies for the no within the boundaries of of a particular religious tradition like Christianity and then in the relation of that tradition to other traditions uh that task of uh, setting up the alternatives and then finding a way to say what it is we believe and the experimentation involved in that. I've made a very good living uh, (laughs) studying the experimentation, trying how they tried on particular words for size. And some words worked and some didn't. There are words in the Bible, important words, which didn't get into the creeds. Mm-hmm. Uh, interesting, like what? Like, mean... the, like the designation of, uh, of Christ as logos. The word. The, the word. Mm-hmm. The word and re- logos means both word and reason, mm-hmm. uh, as in logic. Uh, and the, the Gospel of John begins with the words that uh, many people know, Goethe's Faust, uh, in his study, spends some, uh, a couple of hundred lines trying to translate them. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word was made flesh and dwelt among us. Mm-hmm. And it was, in many ways, one of the most important terms in the arguments about the identity of Christ during the 3rd and 4th centuries. And yet, in the only creed that all Christians, or almost all Christians, have in common the so-called Nicene Creed, Mm -hmm. the term doesn't appear. 
And why was that? <laughs> uh, well, p- partly, I think, because of all the baggage it carried by that time. Uh, and uh, they wanted rather to uh, make use of terms that would uh, clarify simultaneously the distinction between God and his son and the identity. That problem. And the identity. The identity. <clears throat> that is, that when when I say I believe in Jesus Christ, mm-hmm. I am not saying I believe in two gods. Okay. That the, the, the doctrine of the Trinity was the effort to preserve monotheism. Mm-hmm. The real Unitarians were the Trinitarians. And and for some in those arguments, the Logos uh, image seemed to, to truly present Christ as, a, as another entity, That's separate right. from God. As a, as a subordinate, uh-huh. uh, and therefore in, in the nature of his being, dis- different, yeah. rather than distinct, but not different. But I think, let's say for modern Christians, when you say that Logos is is Christ as reason and logic, um, that might be very appealing. I mean, that might be something appealing that was left yeah. out of the creeds that would help if it were in them. Well, sure. Um, yeah. Of course, the list of terms that were tried <laughs> yeah. and uh, that didn't get into the creed into that creed, at least, is is very long. Subsequently, just to to uh, give a more complete picture, subsequently the term logos is used very often in in various creedal statements, okay. statements that are intended to clarify, amplify, specify this or that out of the Nicene Creed. So uh, it's not uh, that. Uh, the term was discarded, but that in that particular creedal statement, it doesn't appear. So the uh, back to to your general question, uh, the need to specify, which is in some ways alien to much of modern religious sensitivity, mm-hmm. uh, is nevertheless uh, built in. And uh, in times of crisis, suddenly uh, it needs to be invoked uh, yet again. Uh, and so the it, between times of crisis, when you think you can get along without it, uh, if you unlearn it, then the question is whether you'll have that resource available when you need it. Okay. Uh, and, of course... Uh, Creeds have also been used to uh, uh, persecute and to uh, exclude and all those uh, awful things that people don't want to do, at least in religion. They, they're quite happy to be very partisan in their politics, to have strong beliefs about music, clothing, makeup, <laughs> hairstyles, uh, sports, 
Uh, politics. Politics. Uh, they can be very passionate about all of those things, and they are very sure that there's a right and a wrong about everything except faith in God. Okay. You know, there was just a, a passage in your manuscript um, where you said, yes, uh, many people say, and there's certainly credence to this, that that what what the Christian life is about is really is is acting like Jesus or following the example of Jesus or there's there's personal experience that's that's a part of religious uh, personal revelation and prayer and all of that matters but you said there's this question that's raised in the New Testament which gets raised again and again it's a question that Jesus asked what who, think who you, do you say that who do you, who say, do you that? say I am yeah and that that question is asked again and again in every new tradition in every new every different culture that actually is so simple but that really made sense to me that that's an important question and, and that, that behaving like jesus follows on an answer that you come to for that yeah and and that's the difference between jesus and socrates say some more i mean uh all of us uh are in one sense or another pupils of socrates John Stuart Mill said, humanity cannot be reminded often enough that there was once a man named Socrates. Uh, and that's right. But uh, there are no temples built to Socrates. Nobody ever wrote the B minor mass in honor of Socrates uh, because he calls upon people to learn uh, and therefore to be honest with themselves, but he does not call upon them to take up their cross and follow. Mm-hmm. And and both he and, and Jesus died for what they believed. But Jesus died in, a, in the conscious uh, commitment to, uh, to the save, salvation of the world. And so wherever the message is preached and brought in whatever language it, or it comes from, the language it comes to and the culture into which it penetrates must, at some stage of its maturation, learn to answer yet again the question, who do you say that I am? Because the you say in that question mm-hmm. is the culture in which we live. Right. He does not. He's not asking... Who does who does the fourth century say that I am when it was writing in Greek? Uh, that's important because without that we wouldn't be where we are. But at some point, you have to be who and what you are in the only culture in which you're ever going to live, the only century in which you're going to live and die, and in that century, you have to answer with whatever linguistic and philosophical equipment you have, you have to answer the question, who do you say that I am? Mm. And so the motto, which you may have uh, seen in, in also in the manuscript, we do not want to Christianize Africa, we want to Africanize Christianity. <laughs> and and that, I know, I'm, I'm basically a historian uh, rather than a contemporary theologian, uh, on this, I usually say that everybody's an expert on his own century, and I file a minority report on behalf of the preceding nineteen. <laughs> uh, and uh, and the history of uh, of the movement of Christianity from one 
place to another of the translations of the Bible into now more than 2,000 languages? Mm. Is the history of how uh, one sought in, in, a, in a new setting to not to speak the same thing, but to say the same thing. Okay. You spoke quite differently. Yes. But, and, and to test the integrity and therefore the honesty and therefore, ultimately, the authenticity of what you're saying, that's the task of a creed. Okay. All right. Before we go on, can you, would you mind taking off your jacket? Because those buttons, I can hear my engineer. He's going to be saying to me when he's editing this. Well, but, but they have the Yale seal on. <laughs> he's going to be saying to me, what what is that rattling? What's that well, because that's his false. Teeth. He makes me take off. Yeah, I'll tell him that. He ta- makes me take off my bracelets every time. All right, oh, great. Thank you. All right, okay, wonderful. We're getting to one. This is great. Um, nevertheless, we do. Let's say in this country, at least, and I don't know about in Africa, but in this country, at least, Christians of many churches do still often on Sunday morning, or at least in in their baptism recite or have recited over them creeds that were written in the first few centuries of Christianity. Um, And I think uh, something for me when I studied theology, I mean, when you actually, because they are recited and it's rote and they're memorized, and yet modern people don't have any sense of why these fourth century creeds were written and the as you say, the experimentation that was going on and the lively, passionate argument that was going on. Um, they don't have as much meaning as they might. And so I'd like to sort of get into that with you, um, partly because, as you said, you file a minority report on behalf of the last 1,900 years. I, I want to say that for this show, we, we speak in the first person. I mean, I, I do what, what the Institute does. You know, I ask people that there's no abstraction about God. This is all with the integrity of a human life and a human mind behind it. But uh, I but, think when you speak, speak in the first person, you, your friends are Eusebius and Gregory of Nazianzus. Because I speak in the first person plural. Yes, you do. You <laughs> and, do. And the original text of the creed was not I believe. Okay. We believe. Right. Okay, so... Pistevomen was the Greek. <laughs> right, so there we are. Um, and... So I thought maybe what would be fun would be to to spend a moment with the Nicene Creed, which, as you okay. said, is the, is perhaps used by most. It is. Traditions. It's the only universal creed. It is. Okay. And why is that? Why the Nicene Creed and not any of the others in those early years or that came later? Well, there, you can answer that question at a number of levels. My father used to say the difference between a dialect and a language is that a language has an army, uh, and, and the dialect is just spoken by people. And, uh, and so the Nicene Creed, uh, from uh, what we call the Nicene Creed, which is in fact adopted at the Council of Constantinople in 381, rather than the Council of Nicaea in 325. Yes. Where is Nicaea, by the way? I couldn't remember. It's this. in Turkey. Okay. Iznik is its present mm-hmm. uh, name. Uh, and it's just a dirty little town and crossroads. Uh, it's it's all now part of of Greater Turkey, mm-hmm. uh, and of course Constantinople, three eighty one, 
is the present-day Istanbul. Uh, but it was adopted at a council called and directed by the Christian emperor. Newly converted Christian emperor. The not yet baptized Christian ah, emperor. Who was not baptized till his death. Hmm. And so all those years that he called himself, he, he said to the bishops of the church, all of you are bishops, and I too am a bishop. <laughs> I am a bishop for the things outside the church, and you are bishops for the things inside the church. Oh, but Christ. by the time he was done, he was uh, he was running things. Is that an early version of separation of church and state? Uh, uh, not of separation, <laughs> uh, but... Uh, uh, it was uh, actually the term that was invented for it much later by scholars was Caesaro papism. Mm. That is, mm. that Caesar, mm. the emperor, is is in fact the pope. Wow. Uh, but uh, so at one level, the reason for the uh, universal authority of uh, the Nicene Constantinopolitan Creed is it, the political and ultimately military authority it carried and each conquest hmm. by the Roman Empire also brought the creed uh, Constantine's uh, mother St. Helen uh, St. Helena uh, came to Jerusalem and it was she who found the sepulcher of Christ hmm. and found the true cross and in the true cross were nails which she sent to Constantine and he had them melted down into a bit for his war horse. Mm. Onward Christian soldiers marching as to war. Uh, and as he marched and conquered, the creed came right with it. And so centuries later, in the great modern expansion of Christianity, during the 18th and above all the 19th century, my late colleague Kenneth Scott Lauderette at Yale wrote a seven-volume history of the expansion of Christianity. And three of the seven volumes are on the 19th century, which he called the Great Century. Well, it's not accidental. That's also the Great Century of colonialism. Hmm. Wow. So the religion of the white man, uh, which brought... No, uh, sanitation and uh, 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 money economy and all the advantages and disadvantages of being modern also brought the creeds. Well, this is making me think that we should be banning this from modern worship. Uh, and substituting another creed for it, or no creed. Um, you, uh, uh, it, It's a plausible suggestion, and indeed... Uh, you are in the tradition of a fairly substantial group, particularly in the United States. And we're, uh, as we go into uh, 2004, uh, we are about to celebrate the 200th anniversary of uh, one of the greatest thinkers America produced, Ralph Waldo Emerson, mm. uh, for whom I have great personal affection. My mother, who was born in, you should pardon the expression, Serbia, uh, learned English partly reading Emerson. I still have her copies of Emerson 
uh, from her girlhood. Uh, and uh, Emerson was a graduate of the Harvard Divinity School uh, and was a Unitarian minister and then resigned from the Unitarian ministry because he found it too restrictive. <laughs> so that's, that's bad. Yeah. That's bad, yeah. and and so he uh, he was quite prepared to believe that everyone should compose uh, a a creed different from the tradition. You're, he said to the divinity school students at Harvard in 1838 in the famous divinity school address, "You must be yourself, a newborn bard of the Holy Spirit," mm. and and sing it out. The trouble with that is you do it and then you do it a little bit more and pretty soon you have to teach your children something. And so the best you can do is to teach them what you have and you do that a generation or two and all of a sudden there you have a new creed. A new creed. All right. Well, and the only alternative to tradition is bad tradition. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what you value when you say the Nicene Creed when you I know you know the Nicene Creed not just in English but in many languages um, partly because of uh, what we've already talked about namely that I uh, I'm very wrapped up in the whole history of the church and particularly in the history of its teaching uh, so that uh, I cannot come at any question as though it had never been approached before. Okay. Uh, partly because of that, uh, the uh, the singing of the of the creed uh, is a very important and cherished way of indicating a universality of the faith across not only space but time to know that in the Philippines this morning this was the creed that was recited at mass and to know that the emperor Justinian in the 6th century and Thomas Aquinas in the 13th uh, and my late father and grandfather all affirmed this mm -hmm. and uh, each was whatever the time uh, had made him but uh, uh, I uh, I affirm that and so the we in that affirmation right. and is let's across say, time and space. Okay and so in the Apostles Creed is uses the word I I believe and the Nicene Creed is we believe. Yeah, it's 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 back to we believe. Okay, it that's the way it was adopted originally. All right, and then for a long time it was I, uh -huh. when it was used as a baptismal creed, oh. because baptism is administered to people one at a time. Okay, and so when you ask the candidate for baptism or the sponsors of the infant for baptism, you know, what do you believe? Then you say. I believe in one God. The Apostles' Creed was originally a baptismal creed. Okay. And so uh, uh, there the first person singular is the appropriate one. The Nicene Creed 
is finally the creed that's used at the celebration of the Eucharist in, in the Divine Liturgy. And uh, therefore, it's, it's we, because all of us together. And in a more profound sense, that also forms an answer to your, to your question. My uh, faith and my faith life, like that of everyone else, fluctuates. There are ups and downs and hot spots and cold spots and, and uh, boredom and uh, ennui and all the rest can be there. And so I'm not asked of a Sunday morning, as of <laughs> 9.20, what do you believe? And then you sit down with a 3 by 5 index card and say, now let's see, what do I believe today? No, that's not what they're asking me. They're asking me, are you a member of a community which now for a millennium and a half, which is, you know, a hundred years took just as long then as it takes now, uh, which for a millennium and a half has said, we believe in one God. And so that's what I affirm when I sing it. Uh, and um, and I suddenly, you know, I know that, that the Bach B minor mass is, uh, is the, the great setting of this. My late friend Stephen Jay Gould, uh, who uh, insisted uh, with dogmatic fervor that he wasn't a believer, mm -hmm. uh, was a member, uh, in addition to being a distinguished paleontologist and a terrific communicator, uh, Steve Gould was a member of the Handel and Haydn Society in Boston. And so he sang all this ancient music. And in an interview several years ago uh, that uh, we were both involved in, uh, he was asked about communication with other planets and other worlds and how should we try to reach people who don't know our language or anything else. And he said, we should play the Bach B minor mass <laughs> and say in as many languages as we can, this is the best we have ever done. And we would like you to hear it and we'd like to hear the best you have ever done. And so he would want broadcast systems blurring across our solar system and beyond it with uh, the B minor mass, including credo in unum deum. Right. And that for you is the setting of this great creed sure. of the church. Um, you know, I spoke with a scientist, a geneticist, who's also an Anglican priest, at one point, and he said that with his mentality of a scientist, like Stephen Jay Gould, he uh, he thinks of the creeds, the great creeds of the church, as sort of the the best working hypothesis we have, the best working hypotheses we have, which is sort of liberating for me because it, it on on the one hand it doesn't mean that we throw them out the window, right? You keep working with them, and you also realize that you're grappling with mystery. St. Augustine, who wrote probably the most important book about the Holy Trinity ever written, and an enormous work in abstract Latin, exploring if we are created in the image of God and God is Trinity, then how is the human soul a trinity? 
and and looking at all kinds of biblical passages and all that. And at the end of this enormous work on which he spent so many years, he said, we have said this not in order to say something, but in order not to remain altogether silent. Mm. And uh, that's right. And uh, I'm sure that uh, a scientist feels that way. And, you know, in a sense, I'm a scientist, uh, yes. historical. I work in historical science. I have an honorary degree of Doctor of Historical Sciences from the University of Bratislava in Slovakia. Uh, so uh, for me as a scholar, I would say, if that's the more appropriate term now, uh, uh, the historical uh, conditioned of of all of this, that each of these words has uh, centuries of uh, of development behind it, that uh, there was a time when people believed uh, in a universe that had uh, three three floors, uh, and uh, therefore Christ can uh, descend into hell and ascend into heaven as though it were a, a lift in a in a small building with with three levels, and that we can't believe that anymore, etc. All of that is in there, uh, and uh, I can't uh, wipe it out, perform a frontal lobotomy as though it weren't true. But uh, because you have to say something, we cannot but speak of those things which we have seen and heard, the apostles say in the book of Acts, because you have to say something, and because what you say is what you have received as it then passes through you, not around you, uh, I say what I say in the creed, uh, and also performs the function of a flag. How's that? Uh, an identity okay. uh, by which uh, uh, we are known to those who, who may not be part of this community, but who want to know what you are. You wear a flag in your lapel, or you fly a flag from your sailboat, or, or whatever. There is a, a mark of identity. And that is is one of the difficult sticking points for modern people living in an increasingly pluralistic world, right? And you you talk about this a great deal in your manuscript. Uh, you're very much aware of the modern discomfort, sure, uh, the discomfort of the modern consciousness with the whole notion of creeds. And yeah, yeah, I'm aware of it. I I don't share it. Yeah. Uh, but I'm yes, uh, I'm a professor in a secular university, uh, and as the saying goes, and some of my best friends <laughs> have uh, have nothing to do with creeds. So uh, uh, I, the interesting thing, though, is the world is much more pluralistic than it is relativistic, mm -hmm. and those are often equated mm -hmm. in the secular West. Because there are so many different beliefs, therefore, the best thing is not to have any beliefs. But the, all those other beliefs are very firm, as we're discovering, now that suddenly we're conscious that there are a billion Muslims in the world. Yes. And, <clears throat> and the need to have 
understanding and toleration and to uh, guarantee religious liberty are often that all those needs are often grounded by people on uh, on relativism because you can't really know anything for sure therefore you must not constrain others to believe which well, is basically what Thomas Jefferson said right well also I think there's a there's a, a, a sort of impulse it's not always articulated that if you proclaim a truth that in some way you are negating the truth of another or that that's an assumption I don't think that's necessarily true at all but I think people feel that way Americans feel that way um, be- as I say because they came to their uh, understanding of religious toleration by way of uh, a conviction that religious beliefs are relative. But you see, if if we're going to have to wait for one billion Muslims to become relativists... To live in our kind of pluralism? Yeah. If that's, not, if that's <laughs> yeah. the way we're going to get religious understanding, then we better fasten our safety belts. Right. Uh, and if I may repeat something I... I I was quoted in the Times a couple of weeks ago. Um, The most important systematic formulation of Jewish theology ever written, The Guide to the Perplexed Mm. by Rabbi Moses Maimonides, Rambam, was written under the protection of a Muslim ruler and written in Arabic. Wow. And the most important statement of Eastern Orthodox Christianity ever written was uh, entitled On the Orthodox Faith by John of Damascus, protected by the Sultan of Damascus. So that here in in a Muslim-ruled culture, both of these scholars for the other two great monotheisms of the world. statements of their faith. That's right. And, and you know, it's hard to believe that that would have happened in modern Baghdad. No, but that's where your communion with history and and bringing those pieces of information into our modern consciousness. Yeah, is that's important. the first. We have to have the, and so it 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 must be possible. Let's say within the framework of Islam, it must be possible to affirm the faith of Islam. There's one God. And Muhammad is his prophet, as a faith by which you are you will be willing to live and die, to affirm that, and at the same time, not nevertheless, but therefore, to say that those who do not share this faith have the right to affirm their faith, partly because there is only one God, and anybody who believes in God believes in that God, and there are not several gods lined up as as alternatives. And I can hear that as a very pertinent challenge to, say, Christians in America. Well, uh, sure. Uh, Many of whom don't believe much of anything, and many of their churches don't believe much of anything anymore, Uh, and their creeds are therefore largely dead letters. Uh, because they 
uh, interpret away the specific content of, say, something like the resurrection of Christ. When, uh, when an Anglican bishop can say that Easter is something that happened to the disciples rather than to the person of Jesus, <laughs> that's not in company with the communion of saints uh, right. over the centuries. And that's but the age you, we're living in. But yeah. you see, but the Second Vatican Council, uh, this remarkable event of the 20th century, certainly the most important religious event of the 20th century, maybe the uh, most important event since uh, the Reformation. At the Second Vatican Council, the Declaration on Religious Liberty, largely written by my late friend, Father John Courtney Murray, of the Society of Jesus, uh, declared the right of religious liberty not on the basis of saying, well, it doesn't matter much what, what you believe. Quite the opposite. Because you believe in uh, the Christian tradition, which affirms creation of the human race in the image of God, and therefore the inherent dignity of the human race. The title of the declaration is Dignitatis Humanae, Human Dignity. Because of that, because therefore religious faith is so important rather than because it's so trivial, therefore you must not constrain others because faith can only be be given freely, uh, and uh, and you know in an age my my colleague Stephen Carter of the of the Yale Law School whom you ought to interview. Sometime. Yes, I know I will. Uh, Steve Carter wrote an essay one time on religion as hobby, which <laughs> I'm afraid describes the way a lot of people. Yeah, are. and you know. Uh, my friend Roberta Bondi, who's a Methodist theologian, has said she believes there's at Emory. at Emory that there can be such a thing as spiritual promiscuity, and she says, and if I, how can I claim? How can I say that it doesn't really matter what I believe, and then claim to care what you believe, care about what you believe? Yeah, uh, and would you trust somebody who said that to you? Right. I mean. Uh, Somebody who, uh, therefore, is uh, has already uh, given away the show. Right. <laughs> okay. So, so we've named this this uh, this modern problem with creeds and some of the problems with the way we've addressed that. Um, but there, there is this issue that you know there is this tension uh, between the creeds, and as you point out. I mean, even the oldest creeds we have did not come out of the mouth of Jesus Christ, right? Good. The only and creed that came out the only creed that came out of his mouth was the creed of Judaism. Right. The okay. Shema. And that's good for us to remember too. Yes. And uh so so there are good religious impulses that say it's not so important to, to recite words what you know, there's this tension between having the creeds and on the one hand experiencing personal revelation and being in prayer and, and having your own religious life. On the other hand, saying what's important is, is acting, uh, is, you know, what would Jesus do is the, is the bumper sticker. But, uh, 
For one thing, he wouldn't have a bumper sticker. He wouldn't have a bumper sticker. But <laughs> but but I think some of that kind of of I think I think the the impulse to say yes, we have creeds, but that's not enough. That is also part of this. It's necessary, modern but not rejection. sufficient. Yes. Yeah. I every Sunday uh, at uh, at worship, uh, I'm a member of the Orthodox Church in America. In the liturgy of St. John Chrysostom, which goes back to the 4th century, uh, the uh, chant is, Let us love one another, that with one mind we may confess the Holy Trinity, one in essence and undivided. Let us love one another, Mm, that we may confess. confess. Right. Uh, And so, uh, nobody says that it is the nature of God to be a creed. And the New Testament says it is the nature of God to be love. Uh, and so uh, to get the priorities straight, right? even just as you're about to recite the creed, yet again, let us love one another. Yeah. Uh, but uh, if we love one another, then... Uh, for one thing, we shouldn't tell each other lies. We should tell each other the truth as God has given it to us to see the truth. And if you don't want to tell a lie, I'll tell the truth as the church has perceived and learned the truth. Then you end up with something that has a distinct family resemblance to the creed. Okay, <laughs> <laughs> because we love one another, uh, and and love our children, and love the generations yet unborn, uh, we want to pass on to them uh, what uh, we have uh, been blessed with, which is, uh, among other things, the creed. And the creed is, of course, primarily in the setting of prayer and worship. It's a liturgical uh, affirmation, uh, more often chanted than spoken. Mm-hmm. Now, it's a creed is spoken at baptism, but most of the rest of the time, in most of the traditions, it is sung, and uh, that says something too, right. because there are things we can sing that we have a hard time saying, and the language of love which is, in our human experience, a curious combination of spontaneity and uh, uh, convention. (laughs) There There just aren't terribly many ways to say, I love you, besides saying, I love you. Uh, We're recording this in the state of Minnesota, in which the old story is of the Norwegian who loved his wife so much, he almost told her. (laughs) And, uh, well, uh, so in in one sense, it's a very conventional, repetitive, rote thing to do, to say, I love you. You are the one I love. There is no one else I love. But, But there aren't very many permutations. Right. And on the other hand, it's it's uh, the language of love is uh, is spontaneous. You you can't repress it. You comes time to say it, darn it, you say it. 
and uh, take the consequences. And, and that's how it is, how God's love is expressed, both spontaneously by God and conventionally by God. God also says, I love you, mm-hmm. and in a very conventional way. And in turn, our love to God, which is always a response to a love that started with him and ends in him, uh, our ex- response to that love is the service of one another and uh, and of uh, of humanity, but also an act of adoration. So this is giving me uh, a lovely and exalted way to think about a remark you make in your book that that one thing that someone who studies all these creeds, as you've done, is struck by is the sheer repetitiveness Whoa. of them. <laughs> right? You should try to proofread them all in, in the course of a few weeks, as we did. Right. And then you discover just how you wonder, didn't I read this one yesterday? Yeah. But it's so interesting, because I think that the the where someone goes when they hear that there are these thousands of creeds is that that everybody's doing it differently all the time, and that's not really what you find. But I did want to... To, to dwell briefly on one that I, I sense is near and dear to your heart, which is this Maasai Creed, oh, yes. the Maasai people of Africa, which was written around 1960, the Congregation of the Holy Ghost in East Nigeria. I don't know. Would you like to read some of your favorite s- s- sections from yeah, that? Yeah, it, it, like most creeds, it is uh, designed on a threefold pattern of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit uh, and comes out of the experience of Christians in Africa who uh, were uh, animists, fetishists, who worshipped uh, things uh, in nature and and the mystery of life, and who then, uh, upon receiving the Christian faith, uh, began reciting the creeds as they had been taught, in this case by Roman Catholic missionaries, in other cases by uh, evangelical or orthodox missionaries. But after a couple of generations of that, a Christian community uh, gradually comes of age, achieves a level of maturation where uh, you you want to do it for yourself. <laughs> do it your way. Uh, speaking in your context using the images of your culture. And the question is, can you do that without sacrificing the integrity of what you have received? It's easy just to repeat, but then it's not your own. It's easy to say what is your own as though nobody had ever said it before. But then the question is whether it's authentically Christian. And I think this one... Uh, manages to do both of those in in a remarkable way. Mm. We believe in one high God who out of love created the beautiful world. We believe that God made good his promise by sending his son, Jesus Christ, a man in the flesh, a Jew by tribe, born poor in a little village, who left his home and was always on safari, doing good, curing people by the power of God, teaching about God and man, and showing that the meaning of religion is love. He was rejected by his people, 
tortured and nailed hands and feet to a cross and died. He lay buried in the grave. But the hyenas did not touch him, and on the third day he rose from the grave. Now, for one thing, the Nicene Creed, as well as the Apostles' Creed, go directly from born of the Virgin Mary to suffer under Pontius Pilate. Right. And the whole story in the Gospels. The life of Christ. Uh, yeah, is just leapt over. And that's what a lot of modern people have criticized. You go from Alpha to Omega. Yeah. And here, see, he he was born, as the creed, the, the creed said, he left his home. Creeds don't say that. And he was always on safari yes. in Africa. <laughs> you go on safari. And what was he do, doing? Good. Yeah. Curing people, those are the healing miracles, by the power of God, teaching about God and man, and now suddenly the Sermon on the Mount is in the Creed, right. showing that the meaning of religion is love. And then he was, lay buried in the grave, but uh, not underground, according to the Gospels, not the way we bury our dead, but they put them into a rock tomb and rolled a stone in front of it, as in the Easter story, who will roll the stone away? And the reason they did that was because of marauding wild animals. Okay. And so the hyenas did not touch him as they would have if he had been in a, uh, in, a, in, a in the ground. Right. And and this comes from the Gospels and into no creed that I have ever seen until 1960 in in East Nigeria. Uh, when I read that the first time, uh, I, a student of mine who had been a, uh, a, a, a member of a religious order, uh, she was a sister, uh, and she had been in a hospital in, in East Nigeria. And that's the liturgy that they, re the, the creed they recited at their liturgy. And so uh, she brought it to me, and I just got shivers. Just the thought, you know, the hyenas did not touch him, and uh, so uh, uh, the the act of defiance. God lives even in spite of the hyenas. But it's a good example of this motto that I quoted earlier: that uh, it is not enough to Christianize Africa; we have to Africanize Christianity. Now, the dangers in there are enormous. Mm -hmm. In the 1930s, under the Nazis, which uh, were a movement that wanted to purify Germany of foreign, that is to say, Jewish influences, and uh, to affirm Aryanism, Aryanism, that is to say, we do not want to Christianize Germany. We want to Germanize Christianity. Yeah. It, taking the same right. model. And, and they ended up completely denying that Jesus was Jewish, refusing to ordain as priest or minister anyone who uh, had one-fourth Jewish blood. Which could not be farther from yeah. so, so, but the now, original but, truth, uh, the original yeah, story. But, uh, you know, and so intuitively, one knows that this Messiah creed has has the ring of authenticity and that that Nazi yes. creed does not. Yes. But specifying that, explaining 
what is the real difference between this kind of, as they use the technical word, acculturation, mm -hmm. and that kind is not easy. And, be, and by the time you're done, you've got to be talking about the nature of creeds. Okay. <laughs> oh, it's very exciting, though. It's very exciting. Well, I've had a, you know, I, I've been on this project now uh, just this side of 10 years. Uh, starting it late in a scholarly career, uh, after writing a, a five-volume history of the development of Christian doctrine, uh, and uh, when I started it, I wasn't all sure that uh, I would be able to finish it. I had associated a, a colleague and former student and dear friend who uh, uh, who's been um, indispensable to the project and and who will handle it when I can't anymore. Uh, she's a PhD from Yale in medieval studies, wrote a dissertation on women dressed as men in the Middle Ages. Mm. And that's what Joan of Arc was condemned for, <laughs> for dressing in armor. The title of the, of the book that came out of it was Clothes Make the Man. <laughs> <laughs> and And she's a trained librarian. She runs the... Uh, Bridwell Library at Southern Methodist University, and she's a techie, uh, and we needed all that because this collection of creeds, which is um, being uh, the jackets are being printed as we speak. Yes, uh, this collection of creeds uh, will have also a CD-ROM of all the original languages. Will it? All of the original languages. Oh. So Greek and Latin and French and German and Swahili and Chinese and all of that. And, and it slipped in there. And I, I can't forbear. Uh, I just some time ago received notification from a foundation to which I applied of a grant which by foregoing our, our royalties as authors and the press cutting cost to the bone will make it possible for us to give 325 sets of these creeds to Christian seminaries in the third world, Asia and Africa and It South is an America. expensive and precious set that's of a, books. So that, yeah, it's that a thousand, is a huge It's a thousand dollars a set. Yes. That's, and that's a year's salary in a lot of those countries. Yeah. Uh, and wonderful. we're going to be, it's going to be possible for us, thanks to that foundation gift, to place these these sets there in these places that are so you know struggling to to survive, where I'm sure it will be uh, cherished in, in a way that uh, we who have too much uh, can't even understand. But I was just so grateful that 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 uh, came along, uh, and um, most. Uh, uh, most seminary libraries, many uh, college and university libraries, public libraries, and a surprising number of individuals have uh, have ordered the whole set. Uh, and the the uh, my companion volume to it, which is uh, seven or eight hundred pages, depending on how you count them, will be coming out in uh, in paper separately okay. uh, next fall. So that it will be possible for an individual uh, student or uh, or minister or or interested layman to uh, get 
that and then using that to consult the other volumes in the library. Oh. Uh, and uh, so I'm hoping that will achieve uh, a, a broad circulation. There, there's been nothing quite like it since 1877. Yes. Yeah. Exactly 125 years. You know, so you've you are one of the great uh one of the great religious historians, uh I believe theological minds of our time. And I can't I can't uh not ask you about your conversion. Uh in 1998 you converted from Lutheran tradition in which you had grown up to Eastern Orthodoxy. And I, I, I just wondered, I mean, I, I'm sure we could talk about that for hours on its, in, in, in its I own could, but right. I won't. <laughs> you could, but you won't. But I wonder, just given what we've been talking about, about the creeds, uh, how does your reverence for and your, and your knowledge of, of this, this kind of Christian expression, you know, how is that part of, of your reasons for, for this conversion? The um, the centrality of tradition as um, as a force as the bearer of the message as what the church believes even if I don't believe anything at a particular moment and it, the capacity of tradition to sustain itself and to sustain the church is something with which I have been impressed partly through my own studies and partly uh, by my faith uh, and the realization that of course there was tradition before there was a Bible right that the Bible came out of tradition. Mm -hmm. Took and, a couple of hundred years. And to then tradition together. went on interpreting the Bible. Yes. After the the last book of the Bible had been written. Uh, and a, a deep awareness, and I suppose a deepening awareness, uh, historically, of not only change, which is how historians earn their groceries, the chapter titles of a book in history are of turning points. Okay. Uh, so change, but a deepening awareness not only of change but of continuity. It has. I have never seen it in print, except when I've put it in print. See your friendly local bookseller. Uh, I've never seen it in print that every day since the middle of the first century, Christians have gathered together around bread and wine, thanked God, and received it as the body and blood of Christ. That, that there has been no day when that didn't happen. Now, the doctrines about it have changed, the liturgical forms have changed, all of that, and, and uh, it's in many, many different languages. But that uh, this has happened. Every day, what you multiply two thousand by three hundred sixty-five with an extra day for leap years—that's a massive continuity. Uh, that and, and everything else is sort of uh, trivial over against 
this kind of continuity, and that it's not only that, but in so many other ways. And creeds represent that. Uh, and uh, you know, Moliere's uh, uh, The Bourgeois Gentilhomme, uh, he, he discovered one day that he had been speaking prose all his life. And and so I sort of discovered that I'd been speaking Orthodox all my life. Okay. And so I didn't really convert. Okay. Uh, convert is to change. And I didn't change. Uh, I, I, I simply discovered the continuity that had been there all along. Well, is that what change is often about? I don't know. I, well, I suppose. I, you you but, quote, uh, there's this wonderful quote from John Henry Newman, another great convert. Yes, I know. Uh, uh, but, from but, Anglican uh, back to, he might say, Roman yeah, Catholicism. Well, you know, the church out of which your church came yes. is always an option. Yeah. And... And in answer to, to your larger question about this, mm -hmm. uh, Newman was 44 when he made the change, 1845, and he wrote a book which is now 700 pages to explain it. Right. And so I, having done so when I was 74, would have to write a thousand pages. <laughs> and I, I'm more interested in other theologians than I am in myself, so I'd rather spend whatever time God gives me reading uh, uh, basil of Caesarea than <laughs> reading myself. Well, so, well I'm going to let you go in a minute because I know you want to go to church. No, but that's I, right. You know, John, I want to yeah. keep going for just a minute on this, this interplay between continuity and change. I mean, he wrote, In a higher world it is otherwise, but here below to live is to change and to be perfect, i.e. mature, is to have changed often. Which in some ways is an answer to to the proposition that that maybe there's something utterly flawed with the whole notion of creeds since they're constantly being updated and and played with. Or maybe there's something flawed with the notion of constantly updating them, right. which, is a, which is quite another matter. Yeah. Uh, another convert from Anglicanism, but this time to, uh, to Orthodoxy, my friend, uh, His Grace Bishop Callistus Ware, mm -hmm. uh, when he became... Uh, Orthodox after having been Anglican, his friends at Oxford asked him, doesn't it distress you to leave the church of your fathers? And he said, you don't understand. Because he, only he could say it in his British accent. I have returned to the church of my fathers. <laughs> and of course, that's what, that's what Newman did as well. And in many ways, people have indeed drawn the parallel uh, with uh, my with me with the Newman, youth, yes, yeah, uh, he he came out of the study of the Greek fathers, as I did, and uh, in in many ways, uh, Newman would have been more at home in Orthodoxy than in nineteenth-century Roman Catholicism. He was he became an, a Roman Catholic in eighteen forty-five. And uh, 25 years later was the first Vatican Council and the proclamation of papal infallibility, and Newman was extremely uncomfortable with that. And it, let's note the fact also that in some contrast to the trend we've spoken about a lot, which is this modern discomfort oh. with creeds and with tradition or with the notions of those things, um, there is a, another movement going on of, of conversion, let's say, or... <laughs> Back to continuity. Let's say recovery. Recovery uh, into Orthodox tradition, into Eastern Orthodoxy, and, and also into 
uh, more traditional forms of other of other Christian traditions. Yeah, that's right, and and a lot of that is among young people, common people, and yeah. young people. Yeah, and and to put it in a world perspective, remember that the major lands of Eastern Orthodoxy have been under the tyranny of atheism through most of the 20th century. And at a, you know, at, at a, communism, which was dedicated not simply to proclaiming its atheist teaching, but to wiping out religious faith. So that in the Church of Russia, you know, there's a hundred priests at one point. Uh, and nevertheless, the continuity was there. Mm-hmm. Little old ladies smuggling their grandchildren out of the house to have them baptized when the atheist parents didn't know it. And now suddenly uh, that's coming back. So yes, there's been a very strong movement of recovery. And, uh, and, and of course, that's not confined to uh, Christianity. The same has been true in yes, Judaism. Yes, yes. When, when you know, uh, American reform Judaism was at one point mm-hmm. uh, not very far removed, let's say, from Unitarianism. And uh, by, in a variety of ways, Hebrew has come back. Mm-hmm. The study of Hebrew scripture has and come back. conversion to Orthodox Judaism. You bet. And, yes. and, and, but even the Reform liturgy is much more yes. Orthodox than it used to be. Yes. And tell me, do you see this trend at all, even in a secular place, even, say, among your students at Yale, whether it's expressing itself religiously or not? Well, some of it is expressing itself religiously, uh, but then more generally, uh, I gave the Jefferson Lecture for the National Endowment of the Humanities in 1983 under the title The Vindication of Tradition. And the growing awareness uh, of uh, our heritage and of the need to understand it, to uh, come to terms with it and perhaps even to to reaffirm it uh, is is indeed very widespread uh, it's partly sociological the grandchildren and great-grandchildren of immigrants whose parents became 110% American in the kitchen and everywhere else and who now suddenly would like to be able to speak their language that their parents brought to Ellis Island, and they'd like to be able to cook the way their parents or grandparents did. Uh, so that, you know, at various levels, some of which are utterly sentimental and some of which are pretty hard-headed realistic, yeah. the realization that uh, that it's it's part of your DNA, and that uh, tradition, tradition, and that, and that's why Tevya in Fiddler on the Roof opens the play by affirming tradition. There's a heartbreak to what happens to tradition in Fiddler on the Roof, and yet by the time it's over, tradition is still being affirmed. Okay, I think that might be your last word. I like it. I let me 
I would like to allow you to... At my age, when you say last word. Yeah. Let's say last word for now. <laughs> Just last word for now. You use the analogy of a CD. Yeah. To talk about, to give a sort of physical image for this interplay of cha- continuity and change. Yeah, I was quite pleased with myself when I came upon that because <laughs> I, I thought it was really quite fitting. Now, uh, what I said was, there is nothing... Uh, imaginable, more static than a CD. You know, you can stack up a hundred of them, go into a store and have a bewildering array, thousands and thousands of them. You can buy them, sell them, store them, bequeath them to your children and grandchildren, and they are they remain utterly inert. And uh, a savage or a a Martian coming upon one of these uh, pieces of metal, having no idea what it is, and I might use it to uh, as a coaster on which you put a glass so that you don't stain a tablecloth. And then all you have to do is to take that metal disc and uh, put it in a special machine, press a couple of buttons, which even I have learned to do, and suddenly... It's a it's a Beethoven quartet, or Mozart Ave Verum Corpus, or the Nicene Creed from the B minor Mass, and so it is with creeds. We, you know, they're they're inert, they're static. Uh, we memorize them or don't, uh, and pass them on. And uh, people, as I like to say, make the sign of the cross with their fingers crossed, uh, and and not they're not believed for a while somewhere but they're still there and uh, along comes Stalin and suddenly uh, Russian Christians uh, gathering in in hidden places what do they say to each other you know what they said they said the Nicene Creed in church Slavonic that's what they said mm-hmm. they didn't make it up as they went along mm-hmm. they uh they affirmed it, and so suddenly the CD was music again. Right, and the Maasai imprint their culture and their language and understanding. That's right. And it sings. And it sings. Thank you so much. Thank you very much, Krista. <laughs> Enjoyed it. Okay.